We are continuing our series in the Psalms uh, this week and next week, and then we'll be back in uh, Luke's Gospel. So last two weeks in our Psalm series here as we wrap up this, this summer in the Psalms. We're in Psalm 130 today. As you turn there, just a reminder of some things we've been mentioning that the Psalms are the songs of God's people, and we've been looking at how they are the songs of God's people both then, uh, as they were originally written to the people of Israel, and now how we can sing them today as God's people. And to kind of back up a little bit in history to see this, uh, in, in church history we see in the life of Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, we see the evidence of, of Psalms impacting his life and impacting uh, his ministry and impacting the entire Reformation. Uh, Luther wrote many hymns. One of them was a rendition of Psalm 130, which is called, translated into English, called, From the Depths of Woe I Cry to Thee. And we're actually going to be singing that after the sermon. So you can prepare for that. Uh, it's a great rendition of, of Psalm 130. A couple things in Luther's life. Uh, in 1530, at the Diet of Augsburg, uh, Luther was not able to attend out of fear for his life. He was actually, if you go look up on on uh, Wikipedia, the Diet of Augsburg, it will show the castle where Luther was hiding out. It's crazy. It's this massive fortress, and he's hiding out in there. And during that time, he called the servants, and he said, Come, let us despise the devil. Sing from the depths of woe, I cry to thee, and thereby praise and glorify God. This song was also played during Luther's funeral procession. It was as they were bringing his body back to Wittenberg, and they had stopped in, in one of the towns, and they sang this song along the way. Why is this song so near and dear? Why was it so near and dear to Luther? And why should we care sitting here 500 years later, right? Like, who cares about this old, dead German monk who wrote this song, right? Well, this info that I got was from an article on lutheranreformation.org. And the author says, and here's I'm kind of giving away what the sermon is about here. The author says, From the depths of woe I cry to thee focuses on the sorrow we feel for our sins and our hope in the forgiveness of Christ. It begins in the depths of despair that Luther himself felt as he was in agony over his sinfulness. The hymn continues by emphasizing that we can do nothing to earn God's forgiveness but God's mercy toward us is a free gift. The final stanza expresses trust that the grace of God is greater than our sins and that he will redeem us in the end. And I want to ask us, do we feel the weight of this? As we sit here today, 500 years later, are we prepared to hear from God's word from Psalm 130 and then to, to sing Luther's rendition of it? And then to come to the table as we celebrate these realities. Will we individually and corporately today acknowledge these truths? Again, these are, I just kind of gave it away, like I said, by reading that summary of, of Psalm 130 and Luther's rendition of it. But let's slow down a little bit. Let's get into Psalm 130. Let's unpack it a bit. And the way I want to do that, we're going to look through it. Uh, I'm going to go by couplets here. So there's four sets of, of couplets of two verses a piece. So we're going to, I'm going to read through, through those and I'm not going to read the whole thing in the beginning. I'm going to read through those and explain them. But we're going to look at it kind of in three stages. We're going to look at it at how it, what, what it would have meant to the original Israelites singing this song. Then we're going to look at how this song relates to Jesus and how Jesus would have sang this song. And then we're going to look at for us how we sing this song. 
So first, how did the ancient Israelites originally sing this song? Verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This beginning here comes from a very dark place. Out of the depths I cry to you. This is the language of the sea. The Hebrew people were afraid of the sea. To go into the sea was the worst place you could be. You, you, like, you read the word the abyss, that, that's what it's talking about. To, to go into this deep place where God is very far from there. You are separated from God. You're in this deep, dark place, and that is not where you want to be. And that's where the psalmist is crying out from. And what does he cry? He asks God to, to hear his voice, to be attentive to the voice of his pleas for mercy. And we have to ask this question here. Why is he crying out for mercy? Now we've been in the, we're in the song of, in the Psalms of Ascent here, Psalm 120 through 134. So we talked a little bit last week about how there's uh, this kind of idea of the, the people singing this, these songs, this whole collection as they're journeying to Jerusalem and there's fear of, of people and, you know, bandits in the hills and, and terror all around from, from enemies. But I don't think that is what he's talking about here. When he's crying out for mercy here, it's not because of like we saw in Psalm 123 last week, the contempt and the scorn of the enemies. It's because of his own sinfulness. It's because that he has no hope apart from the mercy of God. And we see that in the next two verses. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I said, if we come here today, right during our time of confession, if we come here today and we have a tally of all of our sins, it's going to be way more than 10,000. But there is no tally of our sins, right? The Lord does not mark our iniquities if we are in Christ. And And the psalmist knew that. He didn't know it fully like we know it, but he knew that God's mercy meant that that slate would be wiped clean, that those iniquities would not be counted against him. Because if they're not, if, they're count, if they are counted against us, we're in deep trouble, right? We're not coming out of that abyss. We're not coming out of that deep darkness. And then he asks the question, O oh Lord, who could stand? And we see this language in the Psalms, in Psalm 24, 3 and 4, a verse many of us are probably familiar with. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This idea of being able to stand before the Lord is very important in the Psalms. It's it's important in our theology, right? That we, we are able to come before, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but that we are able to stand before the Lord. And then verse four, I wasn't going to mention this, but I I talked to James about it this week. Um, I think this is just fascinating. Uh, so there's a website called Monergism, uh, monergism.com. If you're looking for articles, sermons on anything, you can go just search for. So I went type in Psalm 130. It gives a list of all these, all these sermons that I can listen to. And, and one of them was, uh, there were two, there are actually two like books that were written about Psalm 130. One was by uh, Puritan Richard Sibbs. And I opened that up. I didn't read it. It was like 40 pages. I was like, okay, you know, if I, have, if I had more time this week, if I wasn't trying to, uh, you know, get surprised by all these people and had more study time. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, 
Maybe I would have read that. Well, then I opened up another one by John Owen. Psalm 130. 345 pages on Psalm 130. And three quarters of it was on this verse. But with you, there is forgiveness. Can you imagine writing, I I don't know the math, it's a lot, right? Hundreds of pages on one verse because you're so overwhelmed with the fact that there is forgiveness with a merciful God. I mean, it's incredible. I'm probably not going to go read it, but I would love to read it if I had more time. That's amazing. With you, Lord, there is forgiveness. And this forgiveness is not just a clean slate to say, okay, God just wiped away my sins. Now I'm going to go out and fill that back up, right? So Lord, you can just mark, keep marking all my sins and then I'll come back to you whenever I feel like it and just get that slate cleaned again. Now, in a sense, that happens in our lives, right? As we, we do sin and we come and we confess our sins and, and, and God reminds us of the forgiveness we have, but not in the ultimate sense, right? In the ultimate sense, this God not marking our iniquities is saying, you're forgiven, it's, it's finished, right? There's not this tallying up of sins. It's not a license to just say, oh, well, God wiped my slate clean. Now I can go and do whatever I want, right? And, and we, know, we know that from the very next part of that verse. With you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. There is a purpose in the forgiveness, that we would fear the Lord. Paul's indictment of fallen humanity in Romans 3.18 was what? There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a quote from Psalm 36.1. He, he quotes all these things in the Old Testament, all these indictments, and then he ends this long list with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And, you, and we are to feel the weight of that. That the reason that all these awful things are happening, the, the reason that people live in all these awful ways is because they don't fear God. And clearly here, the antidote is, for knowing you're forgiven, right? Knowing that you're forgiven by God is going to lead you to living a life where you fear God. And we know this is not like, like being afraid of him, right? It's not like cowering in fear. It's, it's reverence and it's awe and it's worship. That's, that's the proper response to knowing that your sins are forgiven. And Psalm 130 is anonymous. We don't know who the author is. Uh, don't know for sure when it was written. But if I could guess, uh, my guess is that the author of Psalm 130 would have had access to David's record of the confession of his sin and the assurance of his forgiveness in Psalm 51, which is one of the greatest pictures of, of forgiveness and assurance of pardon that we have in the Psalms. And before we look at a little bit of Psalm 51, let's remember what led up to that. Second Samuel chapter 11. David's men are off at war. He's chilling at home, right? Up on his balcony, looks out, sees a woman. Bring her to me. Lays with her. Finds out she's pregnant. Oh, we got to fix this, right? Send for her husband. Uriah comes. Hey, Uriah, go sleep with your wife so I can cover up my sins, right? And Uriah says, no way. I'm not going to do that while I'm supposed to be out fighting with God's people, right? Which is a clear indictment of David not being where he was supposed to be. Uriah is the bigger man here. David gets him drunk and tries to send him out again, and he still won't go. So David, in his wickedness and his sin, 
sends Uriah off to battle with instructions in his own hands for him to be killed, right? I mean, it's just totally wicked, heinous. I mean, if we read this, like, you want to talk about marking iniquities? Like, just read this story and start marking David's iniquities, right? And this is horrible stuff. And how does God deal with him? He sends Nathan the prophet, and he tells him this story of a rich man who goes and steals the lamb of a man who only had one little lamb, and this rich man had all these lambs, and he goes and he steals it, and he kills it to feed it to his friends. And David is rightly furious. He said, this man deserves to die. In his own words, he said, because he had no pity. And Nathan said, you are the man. David, you are the sinner here. You are the one who has done this. And then he tells him the consequences of his sin. And what I want us to focus on here is David's response. You would think that after all that plotting, all that scheming, this didn't just happen in a day, right? This is a drawn out thing. I mean, David's heart is in a bad place. You would think Nathan comes and says, David, you're the man. He says, well, Nathan, let me, let me, let me explain it to you, right? Let me, let me help you understand why. I'll... No. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. One sentence. In the Hebrew, it's actually two words. He literally speaks two words in response to all of this. I have sinned against the Lord. There's no hiding from God, right? Even if you're the king of Israel and you think you can get away with it, you're not hiding from God. And Nathan reassures David after that simple, brief confession. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What's he saying there? David, you deserve death right? You deserve to die for your sin, but you shall not die because you have confessed your sin. As heinous as those sins were, you have confessed those sins to the Lord. We have to understand the context of those events in that story before we go to Psalm 51 and feel the weight of it. If you, want, you can turn there if you want. We're just going to look at the first four verses, but Psalm 51 The first four verses here of Psalm 51, I think, are echoed in what we just saw in the first four verses of Psalm 130. You can even see in the heading there, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is David's longer response, right, than just the two-word response to Nathan. This is his prayer to the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And I would encourage you to go back and read the rest of that psalm and see the assurance that David has of his forgiveness. David here and the psalmist looks back, looks back at God's forgiveness. 
But the life of faith is not one of simply just looking backwards. Most of you know I had my birthday yesterday, turned 40, and there's an element of, of looking back, right? Looking back at what God has done in my life, especially over the last 20 years uh, since I've been a Christian, praising him for those things. But I'm not going to just sit here, right, and spend all my time looking back. I'm not going to spend all my time looking back to the past and dwelling on the past. I want to turn and look by faith to the future for however, more, however many more years God may give me by his grace. And I want to look forward and, and live the life that he has called me to live and not spend all my time looking backwards. I want to look forward with watchfulness. I want to look forward with hope. I want to look forward with anticipation. But the question is, what are we looking forward to? And what are we hoping for? And what are we anticipating? That's not wrong to anticipate things to come in our lives, right? It's not wrong to look forward to my kids getting their driver's licenses very soon. It's not wrong to look forward to all these exciting things, right? But what was it for the psalmist? What was he looking forward to? What was he anticipating? Now, he's just talked in the first four verses about things that he's looking back and praising God for, uh, but he's not looking for more forgiveness. He's not looking for more mercy, though those things are needed. He's not looking for some type of experience. He's not looking for something that God can give him. He's looking for God. Verse five, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. His soul, his whole being, it waits for the Lord and it hopes in his word. It hopes in the things that God has already said to be true. The things that God promises to his people that he will be our God and we will be his people. He hopes in that. He hopes to stand face to face before God one day where there is no sin and death and suffering in the way. I love this picture in verse six. Can you imagine having this job? Can you imagine being standing up on the wall of a city all night long in the dark, being told that you have to stay awake because your life and the life of all the people behind those walls depends upon it? No pressure there, right? We'll look back just a few Psalms for a little insight onto this. Psalm 127, the second half of verse 1. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In other words, the watchman can only do so much. They've watched because their lives and the lives of others depended upon it. But it was ultimately the Lord who protected them and the city that they're in. So as much as these watchmen longed for the morning, as they longed for the safety from the threat of the enemies, from the dark of night, how much more are we to wait for the Lord? How much more are we to have that longing to be with the Lord, to be safe from our enemies, to be safe from those threats? So in these first six verses, the psalmist has, has spent these first six of, of these eight verses, focusing on his individual experience with the Lord, right? Now he turns, he turns his focus outward from his own relationship 
and he addresses the people of God in verses 7 and 8. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. His message here is profoundly simple. Look to God. Look to him alone. Look to his steadfast love and his plentiful redemption because these things are certain. He will redeem you from all of your iniquities. Martin Luther was once asked by one of his students, which were his favorite Psalms? And he said, the Pauline Psalms. Psalms 32, 51, 130, and 143. Now, when I say the Pauline Psalms, you might know that word, the Pauline Epistles, right? So you're thinking something written by Paul. So you're probably scratching your head going, is this guy, like Luther said some really crazy things, right? Um, Like, is this one of them? Um, The Pauline Psalms? And the student, I think, was baffled by that answer, right? Well, the explanation for that is, this is Pauline theology here, right? This is clear understanding of sin and its consequences and of forgiveness and of going to God for mercy, right? These Psalms 32, 51, 130, and 143 very clearly explain the gospel. It doesn't have Jesus' name in it, right? But it's, it's, it's that foundational work that, that God has done and that they, the people of Israel, looked forward to. It's because of Jesus that Luther could say these are Pauline psalms. So let's ask the question, how did Jesus sing Psalm 130? Now, the most obvious answer, first of all, is that he would have literally sang it, right? He would have literally sang this song, this psalm in the temple. Maybe he would have been on one of those journeys to Jerusalem with his family where they sang the songs of ascent. He would have literally sang the words to this all the while having for sure some understanding of how he was going to eventually fulfill these. I mean, can you imagine like him knowing that he was going to fulfill all of these Psalms and singing them? Like, I don't, that's just crazy. But he literally sang it. Then the question is, how did his life and ministry reflect the truths of Psalm 130? And we're just going to walk through this. Verses one and two, he lived a life of prayer and a life of dependence upon his father. His father's ears were always attentive to the son's voice. Until, as he hung there on that cross, he cried out from the depths, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22. No answer. Because... Jesus was making verses 3 and 4 our reality. He was hanging on that cross in our place so that our iniquities would not be counted against us. So that we could stand. And as the one who knew no sin, as he was made to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the promise is that we could stand before God because of him. And as the father turned his face away from his son because he could not look at our Savior with the weight of our sin on his shoulders, 
It was our forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father that Jesus Christ the Son was securing. Verses 5 and 6. We, we've seen, we, we see at the beginning of Jesus' ministry uh, when he was tempted by Satan and asked to turn stones into bread. And he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word that Jesus hoped in as well. And Jesus also modeled all night watchman-like prayer as he showed his followers what dependence upon the Father looks like. He is the ultimate watchman on the wall, right? He is the one who will both build the house and protect the city in Psalm 127.1. Finally, verses 7 and 8. Jesus is the ultimate worship leader of God's people who calls them to hope in the Lord, to hope in his steadfast love, to hope in his plentiful redemption. And he ties a bow on this whole thing with the promise in verse 8 that he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This was being fulfilled and, and being publicly announced when Jesus came to John to be baptized and John pronounced, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus sang this psalm and he lived this psalm so that we might sing this psalm and we might live this psalm in him. So how do we do that? How do we sing and live Psalm 130? Again, I'm just going to go back through these four couplets. Four things, how we live and sing this song. The first thing is to pray boldly. Pray the Psalms. Pray other scriptures, knowing with confidence that the Father hears your prayers because the Son has reconciled you to the Father and he delights when his children pray to him. If you feel like you're having a hard time praying, or maybe if you feel like, I'm just bothering God, right, when I take time to pray, go to the Psalms. Pray his words back to him. He delights in that. You're saying his own words back to him when you pray this way, and he loves to hear you pray them. The second thing is to stand boldly. Stand righteously and stand forgiven because you can stand before the Father clothed in the righteousness of another. This week, and just kind of, to, I've already talked about this idea, but we were, uh, this isn't, a, don't worry, Lindsay, I'm not throwing you under the bus here. Um, this week uh, at the dinner table, I, just, I read Psalm 130, and we were kind of walking through this a little bit, and, and I was talking about uh, verse 3, you know, if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? And I went up on the whiteboard, and I drew a, a, a little picture, and I was like, Augie's not here today, but I was like, okay, this is Augie. I said, all right, everybody, let's list all of Augie's sins, and the kids loved that, right? They're like, list, I won't say what they were, but they're just listing off all these things that Augie does, right? And so I was like, 
what's going to happen here? Like, Augie, look at all these things. Can you stand before the Lord? And I erased his guy standing up and I drew a guy laying down. I said, this is what's going to happen, right? You can't stand before the Lord with all your sins. And then we talked about the gospel. We talked about how Jesus stands in our place. How, so, Augie, you can stand now because Jesus has stood in your place and he has, he has died for your sins, right? You can have assurance of forgiveness and you can stand before the Father. What a great picture. I mean, just to explain that to a little kid, right? Like these things that you have, like it's not any different for, with, with me as an adult or you with a kid. None of us can stand before the Lord with, with, any, with even one thing that we've done, right? And guys, this is so simple, right? Like this is the simple truth of the gospel that we can stand before God if we trust Christ. It just, I mean, it blows your mind. You can see why John Owen wrote hundreds of pages on one verse, right? There's forgiveness with the Lord. It's incredible. I want to try to start to wrap things up here by coming back to Luther again. As I already said, Luther had many famous quotes. He said some very fiery things. And one of those things that Luther said that gets, often gets misinterpreted, misinterpreted, you've probably heard this, is that Luther said to sin boldly. He wrote a, le- a letter to Philip Melanchthon, who was his, his predecessor. Uh, he said to sin boldly. And uh, we, have, like, we don't have the whole letter. We have some, some parts of this letter. But here's the, here's the section from that letter. He said, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong or sin boldly. That was where that came from. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we are here. For this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter, in 2 Peter 3.13, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that through God's glory we have recognized the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from Him, even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day. He was probably thinking of David there, right? Do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. That was Luther's encouragement to sin boldly. The last two we'll take together. Wait boldly, verses 5 and 6, and hope boldly. Verses 7 and 8. And I can't think of a better picture of waiting and hoping boldly than coming to this table. Waiting like watchmen as we anticipate our Lord's return. Feasting with the risen Christ as we celebrate the steadfast love and the redemption from all our iniquities that he has purchased by his blood. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing Psalm 130. And then after the song is done, uh, we'll, in a minute, 
I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll stand to sing the song. Um, after the song is done, you can do whatever you want to do. If you want to sit down for, for a little bit, you can remain standing. We're going to just take some time of reflection after we sing this, this song. Uh, take some time of reflection before we come to take the Lord's Supper. Um, after, after we sing, and whenever you're ready, uh, you, can, you can come forward, and um, we will take the elements again. There are... Uh, the, the bread is a little wafer in a bottom cup, and then the juice is on top of that. So you only need to take one, one stack, okay? You take those back uh, to, your, to your seat, and we will all partake together. Again, this is a table that is not just for those who are members here at Livingstone. It's not just for people who are uh, Presbyterian in the PCA. Uh, this is for anyone who has professed faith in Christ, anyone who is in good standing in the gospel preaching church. Um, you are welcome to come uh, to the table. So let me pray. Uh, worship team is going to come up and lead us in the last song, and then we'll wrap it up. Father, thank you for uh, these truths. Thank you that we can look back uh, to this psalm, and God, we can see the hope of the gospel clearly articulated, that we can see the joy uh, the, the forgiveness that we can see your mercy and we can see uh, all the benefits that we have because of Christ and what he has done for us. Um, God, the fact that we can, that we can even come before you, that we can even approach you, uh, that we can call you father, that we can, we can cry out to you. God, it is all, it is all your mercy and grace. And we praise you for that. Lord, as we, as we sing, as we come to the table, Lord, may our hearts continue uh, to be gripped by these realities, to be gripped by the forgiveness that we have because Jesus shed his blood for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.